Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, the Managing Editor of the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I speak to Alice Valder Curran, who is a partner at Hogan Levels, and we talk about drug pricing from a legal perspective. Specifically, we do dive into the IRA, and Alice had tons of tips to share with us. But first, before we get into the interview, let's first hear a quick word from our sponsor, and then we will be right back with the interview. Hey there, Andy Studnett, co-host of the Applied Clinical Trials podcast here. Check out brand new episodes of the ACT podcast every two weeks on Tuesdays at 10. And you can find past episodes plus much more by logging on at AppliedClinicalTrials.com. All right, Alice, thank you so very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Let's jump into the first question. Essentially, could you tell me about yourself? What has your journey into the world of pharma been like? And did you see yourself working in this industry specifically from a legal perspective? I never saw myself working in this industry. It's interesting. My dad was a lawyer and was in a healthcare adjacent space. He was actually a plaintiff's medical malpractice lawyer. So he had a little bit of science training. He went to a year of medical school before he, he practiced I did not. And so I, I actually started my career. I clerked for a judge for a year. And then I went to the Department of Justice and did civil enforcement work doing False Claims Act enforcement matters. Got a lot of experience in court, first year experience. It's why as a young lawyer, you go do that so you can get that kind of experience. But after I had my first child, I realized I wanted to travel less and I actually wanted to work part-time. And at that point in time, which was the late 90s, part-time was not done particularly well. And so I talked to a number of firms, but the only firm that in my experience really was rational about it was Hogan and Hertzen. And that's why I came here um, and worked with a senior white collar partner named Steve Immelt. And a lot of our white collar work was healthcare adjacent or related to our healthcare clients. And so I was sitting in the Washington office and I did a lot of work for those clients and had an opportunity around 1999, the year 2000, when the partner who had been doing pricing work wanted to move on to this new statute called HIPAA that had been enacted. And so we needed someone to step in to do the pricing work. I wasn't afraid of math and my enforcement background was helpful because this was back when all the AWP cases were going. And so having someone with some enforcement background was helpful. And so I was able to step into this sort of nascent practice and build it. And part of that was because I needed to know what my partnership trajectory was going to be. And I knew that if I learned these statutes, I knew how or who needed the work. I knew how to sell it. And I also knew since I was working part-time, that kind of work often generates a premium because it's a specialty kind of thing to do. And so even if I was working part-time, I could still really generate enough revenue to support a partnership candidacy, which it did. And I then went from sort of doing the nuts and bolts compliance around how you do your pricing to much more strategic advising, because in order to advise pharmaceutical companies about how to calculate their prices, you really have to understand how they commercialize their products. And as you learn about how they commercialize their products and what strategies work and what structures work and which don't, and you then start looking into 
the kinds of issues that come up that you wish that they had dealt with in the clinical stage. If they had dealt with these issues in the clinical stage, they'd have more flexibility in terms of commercialization strategy later. My practice has grown from really being compliance focused to much more broad than that and much more strategy focused. And now we have the IRA and that background around market access, the strategy and clinical development, all of that experience um, is sort of how I ended up where I, I ended up now. But I have no scientific background and I'm really lucky that I've gotten to learn as much as I have along the way. For me personally, I also stumbled into the pharma and healthcare space and I kind of learned along the way. So it's kind of fun to, to hear about someone else, you know, as you're like, I'm jumping into this industry and I'm doing the thing. But that actually makes me curious. It sounds like you developed a specialty over time and that you've stayed within that specialty since. Yes, that's exactly right. But the specialty has grown. So I would say that in my initial years, my practice was very focused on how do you calculate average manufacturer price, best price, the 340B price, average sales price when it came about in the early aughts. And it's really grown to much more of a commercialization strategy, which has then expanded to commercialization considerations that you think about not just a year before launch, but you actually think about in phase one of your clinical trials. And so last year, uh, I'd say in the spring of 2022, I did a three-part market access webinar series that really focused on why you should be thinking about commercialization at the clinical stage with a huge caveat that it is such an achievement just to get a product over the finish line and not to take anything away from that and recognizing that it's frankly a miracle that we have the kind of scientific advancements that we have, that we see enterprises bringing these therapies to market. But to the extent you have bandwidth and the ability to make choices early on to maximize your chances for commercial success, what these webinars are about and a lot of my practices about is purposeful decision-making at these early stages where you can make decisions, making those decisions so that you are in the best possible circumstance given the extremely arcane regulatory environment we have around how products are commercialized and priced in the United States. That brings me to my next question, which is about drug pricing. What are some of the biggest drug pricing challenges that you're seeing today? Well, we have to start with the Inflation Reduction Act. That is the 800-pound gorilla, if not the 8,000-pound gorilla that everyone is talking about. And it's a huge challenge. We already had a baseline of extremely regulated commercialization, pricing, coverage, and reimbursement structures here in the United States that drove those webinars that I talked about last year. And then you add the IRA on top of that and and it's just gotten even more complicated if that is possible. And so the challenges there are the challenges that I'm sure your listeners have heard all about, which is the incentivization or the prioritization of large molecules over small molecules because of the 13 versus nine-year timeframe before you have price controls. The need to maximize every single day that you are not subject to price control. So what does that do in terms of the indications that you get approved and in what order? You know, What does it do to the model of typically starting with a smaller indication to get your sea legs around commercialization to get more data and then get a larger indication later. So indication ordering, the launch success was already important. Again, it's now even more important because if you're time limited, you really want to make sure that you are launch ready on Padufa date plus one. And what, what do you do about that? And then 
that's just before we see what happens with the quote unquote negotiations, air quotes around negotiations, because as a lot of folks have recognized, including recent litigation challenges, calling it a negotiation is required by statute, but not necessarily a factual representation of the process that we expect to occur. So once we see what that process is like, and once we see where the statutory term maximum fair prices end up, that will also feed in and and create incentives, feed strategies and decisions that developers will have to make once we have that additional information. So we could spend this entire discussion on the IRA. So I'll move off that, but but that is first and foremost where things are. Next up, I talk about value-based pricing. That's something that everyone wants to talk about, particularly with these remarkable cell and gene therapies that we see come on on the market, which are um, have a very significant price associated with them for all the reasons that I think we understand. And the very real desire for the developers of those therapies to stand behind their value by offering value-based pricing. Why is that a challenge? Because to make these things work, you have to have a very clear indicator of success in data that the plan that you contract with for the value-based pricing has access to. So, you know, first and foremost, what is the indicator of durability and efficacy of this therapy? And if it's in medical data as opposed to pharmacy data, does the plan that you're contracting with on the pharmacy benefit side have access to the data on the medical benefit side so that they can prove or determine whether value has been delivered? How hard does it get to that to get those data? How long does it take? Do they have access to them? And when I speak with developers around value-based pricing arrangements, that is a key gating item is how do we prove it? Where are the data? Can we get them? Is it easy enough for a plan to do that? But then even if you can accommodate that, you have to have health plans that think the juice is worth the squeeze, that all of the effort that goes into getting those data, see if the therapy works, because that's effort that a lot of them aren't built for, that they might have to build infrastructure around that the level of discount that they're going to get is sufficient, or, you know, frankly, based on the clinical trial data, do they really think the product's ever going to trigger that? Sometimes you have trial data that is so strong, you can have a manufacturer that wants to have a value-based pricing arrangement, but a lot of health plans say, just give me a a rebate at 23% if it's a 23.1% Medicaid rebate drug, or 17% if it's a 17.1% minimum rebate drug, and we'll call it a day. And then we can all avoid having to go through the rigmarole of these complex value-based pricing arrangements. And then the last challenge there is you also have to have health plans that are incented financially to look beyond the one-year event horizon, right? If you're just looking at balancing your spend for the year, worrying about whether you pay millions of dollars this year for a therapy, and you might get a significant payout in year two or year three if it stops working, they might not be worried about that today. Again, which drives this response of very interested plans appreciate the effort, but we'd rather just take a 20% discount up front. And so we have a solution, but the way our healthcare system is built up in terms of medical benefits versus pharmacy benefit and the financial arrangements with insurers and how they manage their expenditures don't necessarily match up. I'd also cite indication-based pricing. A lot of manufacturers would like to have indication-based pricing when they have a molecule that has very different uses, but because of the dosing required or the value a dose delivers, want to have differential pricing, there's potentially ways to do that on the Medicaid side if the two different indications are used, are treated using different dosage forms or strengths. 
but on the Benicare Part B side, it's it can be very challenging to do that. And so that is a challenge that has not yet been solved. So plenty of challenges out there. Those are a few to think through. It sounds like there's a lot of ways to price drugs. And out of curiosity, is the therapeutic area one of the largest factors? I imagine it's a bit of everything, but like, what are some of the main driving factors when a company's like, do we have the rebate program, value-based pricing, et cetera? They certainly treat or look at the therapeutic profile of whatever they're treating. What are the other therapies that are available? How are they priced? And then we get to this whole concept of how do you determine the true value of a product? And clearly qualities are not it, but looking at a more fulsome cost-effectiveness analysis framework where you look at all the different benefits it delivers to a patient is, is how I, I think developers do it. I know of an organization, No Patient Left Behind, I'm actually on its board that has this wonderful discussion of what they call the value flower, where they're really trying to spur discussions of thinking much more holistically about how you determine the value of a product. So you you get just past the, how does it treat that particular patient for that particular disease? How efficacious is it? And it looks at the knock-on benefits to that patient's family, that patient's ability to work, that the value of hope, the value to the community of knowing that there's a cure or that there's a treatment there. They have a very holistic um, approach to determining the value of a product to support its to support its pricing. And I think that that's what I would recommend to your listeners what they go look at. Um, and there are studies and data behind backing it up. And I, I think that as we move through the IRA negotiation process, we are going to see much more discussion of that because obviously through this process, CMS is going to be discussing what should this price, the price of this product and the data that they're going to be seeking appears to be very cost-based, although their guidance talks about looking at the prices of therapeutic equivalents if they're available. I'm personally concerned that that evaluation is going to be too narrow. And I'm also concerned that that evaluation is going to ignore the fact that the way the industry looks at pricing products is not just about representing the value that's delivered to society and to a particular patient through this therapy, but it's also to reflect the need for ongoing revenue to fund additional research. And I'm very concerned that the approach to pricing these products through the maximum fair price product process is going to look like how they do a cost plus contract with the Department of Defense, where they look at how much, you know, it costs to build a particular technology and reimbursing the defense contractor for the costs of developing that therapy or that piece of technology and have an add-on piece of profit. That is not how our industry works. We can look at cost recovery, but it is not so much about that as making sure that there's also sufficient revenue to generate additional research because there is so much necessary failure, I would say, in the development of therapies, and that has to be paid for. So looking in a very narrow lens of how much does it cost to develop this molecule and give a reasonable rate on return is too narrow. It's not, in my experience, how the industry looks at it. It looks much more at What's the value that we're delivering for treating this disease compared to what else is out there and all the other components of value delivery? And how do we also generate sufficient revenue to continue that cycle of innovation moving forward? 
I feel like the answer to so many of my questions in the pharma life sciences space, I'll ask a question. The answer almost always is it's complicated, but I really appreciate your insight. I feel like there are just so many factors and it's always hard to like point a finger on it, but I do really appreciate your perspective. The next question I have for you is what are some of the current efforts to lower drug pricing? And in your opinion, what are some of the most effective, perhaps for the largest number of people? Sure. So clearly we see from the government sort of the top down ways to lower prices through the IRA, through things like demonstration projects. And in a recent executive order from President Biden, a discussion about pooling of Medicaid state plans to have bargaining power to get lower prices. So there are obviously some government initiatives. I also talked about on the manufacturer side, the value-based pricing arrangements. I would also And other sort of performance-based arrangements, whether you put them formally in the value-based pricing arrangements, but more and more developers are looking to to performance-based pricing, often on a population basis. Um, You see states trying to manage pricing through their transparency initiatives. So many states now require manufacturers to report their WACs and their WAC increases. And I think those state efforts are also intended to manage the pricing But ultimately, it's interesting when you talk about how do you lower prices, I think we need to really focus on how do you lower prices for what the patients are paying at the pharmacy counter or when they go to their doctor's office for something that's infused, you know, for some sort of therapy. And there we see developers having, uh, continuing to focus on um, generous copay assistance programs, generous patient assistance programs for free goods. And this is the one place where I think a lot of people will recognize the IRA as being a positive impact, and that is in the Part D redesign and getting rid of the donut hole and reducing the catastrophic threshold, allowing patients to pay premiums or their their deductible on a smoothed out basis over the course of the year. So there's no lack of efforts around drug pricing, but they're all, I would say, sourced from the different stakeholder component of the industry. What we're not yet seeing as much of is these more comprehensive multi-stakeholder efforts to do so across those stakeholder groups. The next question I have for you is what should companies consider as it relates to drug pricing from a legal perspective? Start early. Consistent with our, our earlier discussion, you should be thinking about your pricing strategy when you're in the phase one of your clinical trials. We have a grid that we put out as part of that webinar series that suggests that manufacturers for each molecule that's under development identify each indication that they're pursuing, the order in which they're pursuing it, the payer mix for each indication, what the dosing and pricing regimen is going to be. And if they just map that out, anyone who does what I do for a living is going to be able to look at it and say, this will work, this won't work. Here are your options for dealing with this. And this isn't just IRA focused, it's Payer mix, is this a Medicare B or D drug versus Medicaid versus private payer? That is going to very much influence how you're going to try to price it. Are you going to try to do fixed or parity pricing across different formulations or across different indications? That's something we have to look at. It might work for some payers, not others. So start early, map it out and make purposeful decisions. And then by the time you get to commercialization and you've had this wonderful result of all of your decades of effort bearing fruit and you have an approval so that you can actually impact patients' lives in such an important way, 
make sure that you are considering sort of on a feedback loop basis, how your commercial strategies impact the prices and discounts in these regulated federal markets and making sure that before you make commercial pricing decisions, you're understanding what that's gonna do to these mandatory pricing regimes you have with the government because it could make that commercial strategy much less attractive or counterproductive. And so understanding that you have to make those commercial decisions in the context of what it's gonna do to your federal business and making sure you're taking both of those considerations into account. If you could clarify, when you say start early, when is the ideal time frame to start thinking about drug pricing? Is it like preclinical? Is it once you're hitting phase one, two, three? Like, well, what is the good time frame? I would say preclinical, and here's why. Because when you go into the clinical stage, you're already making decisions, at least tentative decisions around the dosing, the dosage form, and the strength and the amount of product that any patient is going to get. And once you've made that decision, it's not impossible to change it in later stages, but it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. So understanding at that stage what your dosing is and how these trials are going to fit into a larger product development strategy is critical. So that's just from the general commercialization standard. And the other reason preclinical works is in the broader IRA context all the questions we talked about at the beginning, which is indication order, which indications you pursue at all. And before you make these sizable investments in your clinical trials, making purposeful decisions before you do that around that decade in the future plan is actually not as hard as you think and actually not particularly expensive. It just requires that your business team learn a little bit about this so that they can always have that in the back of their mind. That's when I would recommend people think about it. You mentioned the IRA, so I'd love to jump back to that if possible. What is the current status of the IRA and what should companies be watching out for? So there are three components of the IRA that are relevant to the pharmaceutical industry in general. The one everyone's talking about is the price negotiation program, but not to be forgotten, are the inflation rebates for parts B and D of Medicare, and also the Medicare Part D redesign. Part D redesign, we are gonna be expecting to see guidance in the coming months around that, thinking about that design, you know, everyone's sort of looking to that, but that's nascent, it's not full-blown at the moment. Inflation rebates have already started accruing for B and D drugs, so understanding the gross and impact of that. We have some initial guidance from CMS, we're waiting for final guidance probably this summer, later this summer around that sort of waiting to see that. I think the focus of everyone, understandably, because of the impact it has on investment strategies, among others, is the price negotiation program. Where we are there is that CMS has issued final guidance as to some components of that program for this first price applicability year of 2026. They're going to be issuing the final version of the remainder of that guidance in the coming months, maybe July, is, is what people are talking about. So we're waiting to see that. And then September 1, by September 1 is the date that the first 10 drugs that are selected for negotiation will be announced. And then by October 1, the manufacturers of those drugs have to sign their negotiation agreement. And by October 2nd, they have to submit all of their data. So we're going to have a flurry of activity, you know, between September 1 and October 1, because we're going to know the products. We're going to presumably know what the agreement, in air quotes again, says. This is the agreement that's going to govern the negotiation process. And while the dossiers of data that the manufacturers submit won't be public, 
we might learn a little bit about that process as well. And then, of course, we can't ignore the fact that there are now several litigation challenges to the price negotiation provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Those have been filed by a couple of manufacturers, a couple of, of trade groups. Those are all constitutional challenges. I do expect that we'll see more in the coming days. I also expect that those challenges may evolve over time as these events occur that I talked about. So these constitutional challenges are, are what we as lawyers call facial challenges. They are a challenge to the statute on its face and what it says. But as CMS implements the program, there could be bases for either additional substantive challenges based on what CMS does, but also the potential for what we call as applied challenges as, as the way CMS implements the program. So we could see the topics that are at issue in those litigations expand, and we could see additional plaintiffs bring those cases as well. So it sounds like there's going to be quite a few impacts from the IRA, but are there additional impacts that companies, you know, pharma folks, biopharma can expect to see from the IRA in the coming months or perhaps even the next year? Well, I think we're already starting to see discussions from company executives around what it's doing to where they invest their time, talent, and effort in terms of what, you know, th there's a concern around whether there will be a pivot away from small molecules that serve Medicare populations because of the nine-year time timeline um, to be subject to price controls. So I think we're going to continue to see decisions in industry around what gets invested in and what doesn't. And then even for molecules that are developed, the question is what indications are developed and which are not. I think we are going to see a change in the way products are launched and holding off on narrower, smaller indications and not launching them until the big one can be launched so that large indication gets the maximum amount of time before price controls are put in place. So we're going to see a change in investment. We're already starting to see that. I expect we will see a change in the indications that are developed in the order in which they're launched. A couple of other things that I think we may see is fewer companies going it alone on launching. So if you're a smaller or mid-sized company, it's so important to make the most of your nine years. So particularly if it's a small molecule, do they launch on their own if they've never launched a product before? If there's any possibility that some product is going to be subject to price controls later, do you get bought? Do you do a co-promote or something with a larger company so that you have some insurance around making sure that your launch is as successful as it possibly can be because you expect your product to be subject to price controls at year nine. Something else that we might see is, are there going to be situations where it makes more sense to launch for the first time in Europe and get a sense of the product's market and how to market it in an environment that isn't going to start the clock running? I want to emphasize that in each of these cases, it's going to be very product specific. The facts and circumstances around a particular product really, really matter. But these are the types of things that I hear people talking about that make sense to me intuitively. And we just have to see if they bear out as we learn more about the IRA. If I'm understanding correctly, then are some companies then pivoting from, I don't know, developing and manufacturing a drug that might benefit folks in Medicare to another drug that may not be limited by the IRA pricing just yet? That is the concern. Are they going to completely shelve it? I don't know. Are they going to deprioritize it? Are they going to instead prioritize the indications that that product might have that doesn't serve the Medicare population? I mean, everyone who does this work is in it about serving patients. So mm -hmm. 
these are really hard decisions. And so I, I can't make a prediction or point to any particular company or product where they're saying that. But I, I think I'd be surprised if that doesn't happen, at least at the margins, if not more so. I don't know about you, but I feel like I read a lot of fiction and in the fiction, it's always like picking the lesser of two evils, if you will. And not to say that anything is evil here, but it's kind of like, I can continue to help patients over here, or I can help patients over here. And almost like, I'm not sure how, if I'm articulating this correctly, but maybe a company's like, I cannot afford to pursue this medication that's going to fall under the IRA, but I can help patients over here with this molecule that was kind of shelved. I'm, I'm curious to see if there's going to be like, I have two things where I could help two different sets of patients. I have to pick this one for right now. Well, I think that your listeners do that every day. Oh, absolutely. Um, right. They have to make investment decisions and green lighting additional investment in some products over others every day. It's just that the IRA is creating even making that process even more fraught and more difficult because of these decisions. The one other point I want to make is I've talked a couple of times about the importance of pharmaceutical executives learning about commercialization considerations, even in the preclinical stage and understanding the end game and how that end game around commercialization and how Medicare and Medicaid cover and reimburse products can influence how you design your trials, how you dose it and the, the like. And in my experience, the most sophisticated companies are doing that or, or at least trying to do it. In the IRA, we have legislators who are so far removed from this process. One of my favorite sayings that I tell clients all the time is do not underestimate the ignorance of the agency. I would also say do not underestimate the ignorance of your legislator. These are all extraordinarily intelligent people, but they do not necessarily understand the complexity of the ecosystem that our industry works in, not just in terms of drug development, but also commercialization and how Medicare and Medicaid pay for things and all the incentives and disincentives that creates. And so to have legislators wade into that and pick effectively winners and losers because they don't understand the complexity that it's, it's hard for even those who are in the industry to grasp holistically, it is no wonder that with this statute, which is so complicated in its own right, that there are unforeseen consequences that weren't intended, but are the necessary consequence of when you have folks waiting in and making decisions without a full appreciation of, of how those changes are going to work their way through the, the system and create incentives and disincentives. It's a really excellent point. And so how can that be remedied? You know, how, like, is it more of like a more collaborative effort, more information to the legislators and the regulators and all the rest? And it's okay if you don't have an answer. <laughs> I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. And I personally wasn't involved and certainly in any engagement with Congress around the IRA. But I do know that I have done that in the past. In my experience, the legislators are very, very curious and interested in learning about it. I guess to me, the solution, and it's not a solution, the first step towards a solution is having everyone recognize that you have to educate folks about these incentives and invest the time. So if you want your regulators to understand that, and the regulators have to be willing to invest the time to learn it, as opposed to thinking that or at least accept that their failure to do that has these unforeseen consequences that can be very problematic. 
Earlier on, you had mentioned some dates in August and September and October. I guess maybe in general, what are some of the IRA milestones that we'll be seeing through the end of the year? So July and August, I think we're going to see guidance coming out from CMS for all of these programs. And so look for that. The first next hard deadline is September 1. September 1 or by September 1 is when CMS has to announce the 10 drugs selected for negotiation for the first price negotiation year. By October 1, the manufacturers of those 10 drugs must sign their negotiation agreements. And by October 2nd, those manufacturers have to submit the data that CMS is going to require. They've already issued one information collection request around that. That's the data, the deadline for manufacturers to submit their data to support the negotiation process. Those are the only hard dates we have through the end of the year. So it is going to be a very busy end of August through the end of the year, because once we get this information, it's going to necessarily feed more discussion around what it means, what are the implications of the drugs that are selected, how they calculated the numbers. CMS certainly would like that negotiation process to remain completely behind closed doors. We saw that in the gag rule in their proposed guidance, really restricting, proposing to restrict what manufacturers can say about the negotiation process. Um, So I'm not sure how much we're going to learn about that process once it starts in October, but there'll be plenty of grist for the discussions once we have those drugs and we can see what the agreements say. My final official question for you is any final tips for drug pricing from a legal perspective for our listeners? Don't be afraid to learn it. This is not the most sexy thing you're ever going to do by any stretch. And there are high barriers to entry because it is so complicated, but you can do it. And it's incredibly rewarding to do it because once you gain the basics of how the systems work and what the incentives are, it will make your decision-making so much more informed and powerful that it will be a very positive feedback loop because you will see how gaining this knowledge allows you to make much smarter decisions. Not easy decisions, but there'll be decisions that are purposeful so that if you're a pre-commercial or pre-clinical stage company and you have to talk to your investors about what you're doing, you can talk to your investors in an informed way, perhaps more informed than even they are around what these structures are. So I would say you learn about it through iterative exposure. It can be daunting, but anyone who got into this field they're almost always have a scientific background. And if they've mastered that, they can master this. They just need to make a little bit of time to learn it. I love that. And now I'm going to move to the leadership tip portion of our episode. So we always like to ask speakers essentially the following question. What is one leadership tip that you'd like to share? It could be for your fellow colleagues, a younger version of yourself, or maybe up and coming colleagues, um, something that you wish you knew, anything like that. The first tip is seize the opportunity and embrace the risk. When these opportunities come about, it's easy to be intimidated by them, to be slightly nervous about them, to wonder whether you should do them. It's normal to feel that way. Embrace how good you are at what you do and seize that opportunity because you should not take it for granted. Don't let any questions about how good you are at what you do keep you from doing that. When that opportunity is there, seize it. And you will be successful and don't be afraid to do that. And that's particularly important for women. 
So tip number two is have self-confidence in your own humanity. I learned from my mom at a very early age, you know, Alice, just meet people where they are. Everyone goes through the same thing in their lives, no matter what their title is or what they're doing. You can engage with them as a human being about what they are, what they do, what their challenges are, what they're proud of, and just meet them there. And as someone who's had leadership roles, one of the most effective approaches I've ever had is acknowledging my own fallibility, absolutely acknowledging my own um, vulnerability, and recognizing that that is not a sign of weakness, that is a sign of confidence. Because your ability to acknowledge that to others means that you accept who you are, you acknowledge the flawed nature of every human being, and it creates an opportunity for you to have a connection with someone else where they're going to trust you and want to follow you and want to be with you because everyone feels that way, whether they want to admit it or not. And if you admit it first, it just makes the conversation easier. So that's tip number two. And tip number three is um, the last point I made, which is just learn it. We talked about at the top of the discussion that I don't have a scientific background. I got to where I am by being willing to say, I don't understand what you just said. Can you please explain it to me? Again, so many people think that that's a sign of weakness by raising your hand and saying, I have a question. I think it's a sign of confidence because you're willing to say, I know I'm a smart person. I totally did not understand what just came out of your mouth. And I have to do that a lot with companies because I'm not a scientist by training. I don't know what these acronyms stand for, but anyone who is in this industry has to be smart and good at what they do. So just acknowledge what you don't know and get someone to explain it. And that person will always appreciate that you ask that question because it gets them to talk about something that they're excited about talking about. And they trust in a conversation with you going forward that you're gonna tell them if you don't understand something and that way you'll really be able to go on that journey together. I love that so much. Absolutely. Definitely ask the question if you don't know what it is and it's okay not to know what something is, but thank you so very much, Alice, for joining me on this episode. I have learned so very much. I would love to chat with you again in the future and pick your brain some more, but thank you again so much. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Meg. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube at Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com slash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.